This week's podcast is going to be something that I think will be entertaining, devastating, fun, and exciting. Glenn has come into life of body science, oh, what, a couple of months ago, mate? You sort of yeah. hit the, I mean, you've been around for a while, but you sort of came under my radar in a big way. Glenn Compain is a man who has led voluntary aid workers in Uganda, worked with orphans, child soldiers. He's all about men talking about their shit now. He's got some stories that are going to change your life. How are you, mate? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm and I'm really stoked you're on board. What are some of the things you reckon we might touch on today? Uh, we could touch on, yeah, my uh, work in Uganda, East Africa as a teenager. I was stricken as a child with asthma, chronic mm -hmm. asthma, yep. and um, sport, you know, venture into some sport. Yep, nice. He's also left out that he is a copper, so he's got some good stories there as well. <laughs> and you do a lot of work with troubled youth as well, don't you? I do. I've probably ever since I was a teenager myself, I didn't grow up, um, you know, with, uh, I guess, a whole lot of role models and whatnot. Um, I'm from Kelston, West Auckland. And we basically, you know, had to kind of find uh, things to do. So a lot of uh, rock throwing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, stone fights, yeah. a lot of swimming in the creek and sort of find your own way through things. Yeah, I just, um, I guess I uh, was on the street a lot and I saw the plight of other people that are, were really on the street. So we hung out on the street as kids. Yeah. But when you see people who actually have a blanket on the concrete, you know, and, and have their hand out for food, I saw a lot of that as a kid and that kind of, I guess, tweaked the heartstrings into wanting to work with people who are um, vulnerable. Wow, that's amazing, yeah. mate. Let's rip in and hear your story. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the world of fit, happy, and healthy. And today, Glenn Compain is in the house. How are you, man? I'm good, thank you. That was a pretty interesting little uh, intro we did there. Mate, let's let's dig straight into it. Let's do a bit, a bit of a buy on you because, like... I look at your bio and I go, where do I start? Like you've written a book, Streetwise Parenting. You've worked with youth groups. You're working in police. You've been in police in New Zealand. But let's hear the real story from you because the 10 minutes we had before we started this podcast, I wish I was on air. Like I just I, I'm really hope we can reproduce that. Yeah, I guess um, my real story, I'm, I'm the youngest of four boys. Um, my dad hails from Fiji Islands um, and my grandmother from Samoa. Um, and I guess our family, uh, the Compain family, is like a love story. Um, and, you know, um, my, my, my great-grandfather was in the U.S. Marines yeah. and he was based in Samoa. Um, in those days, a Samoan couldn't marry a, an African-American or a black American or yeah. Miuli or black person yeah. in those days. So my great-grandfather had to elope to Samoa and, and um, therefore they had my grandmother in Samoa. So it's a bit of a, uh, you know, a romantic story. I like that. Um, and then my, my nana married my grandfather, who's French, a full Frenchman, um, and and uh, the compagne or compa, uh, and then they married and had my father in Fiji. My father then came to New Zealand, married my mother, uh, who's New Zealand Maori. So I'm, a lot of people call me United Nations. You're not wrong. <laughs> but um, Which I guess- Which footy jersey are you putting on these <laughs> yeah, days? <laughs> yeah, well, my, my sons have a, have a, a bit of a, a choice. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, in, in, in our culture or the culture that I've raised with, it's important to always acknowledge your parents. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always give that um, acknowledgement of my, my, my grandparents and my mum and dad. And that's something, I guess, a value that that's been instilled by me, uh, sorry, by my grandmother, um, who I was raised by um, at the age of 10. Um, 
I couldn't be controlled at school. I was one of those kids, you know, when the teacher's um, yelling, always yelling at the kid. I'll be up on the roof of the school. I'll be, I don't know what it was, but I just had a whole lot of energy and I couldn't stand being in the classroom. I still can't. <laughs> um, even in, uh, you know, my current job, if I'm in a classroom sitting on the worst person, I'll, I'll, I'll harass everybody and, yeah. you know, make a make a pain of myself. But I think um, I get bored easily. So um, in, in primary school, I'd get bored. Um, um, which was, um, I guess, the teachers would take as being disruptive. Yep. Um, I was always getting the cane and getting the strap. So I was always like, off to the principal you go, six of the best. And I'd, you know, meander to the principal and try and put books down my, my the, <laughs> the back of my pants, you know, waiting for that, that strap, six of the best. So I kind of didn't like school, didn't want to be at school, um, didn't like the teachers, didn't like getting strapped. And that sort of, I guess, drifted me towards the, uh, what I call the hearing impaired. And in those days was the deaf kids. You know, the deaf kids had their own unit, the hearing impaired. Yep. So I began to um, kind of hang out with them and I wondered what they were doing with their fingers. And so they taught me um, sign language as well as I would be their bodyguard. So I learned that I had a talent <laughs> as a kid. And that was to, um, I started protecting all the kids that were bullied. So if anyone was bullied, they'd come to me. Uh, we didn't have a lot of food in our house, so I used to charge them, um, look, if I look after you this week, then, you know, that, that's lunch. Yeah, nice. Kind of a bit of entrepreneur when I yeah, was young. Exactly. Um, yeah, but just just, just had a, I started protecting people. And I guess, um, you know, if there was a fight, I'd be the first one and then to break it up. Yeah, okay. I wasn't a bully, but I was probably a bully to the bullies. Anyone that was bullied, I'd say, who was it? They'd say, that's that person. So I'd go over to him and just have one-on-one and, you know, do my best to take him out. So I had a, a strong sense of justice as a kid mm -hmm. and coupled with the asthma. So I had chronic asthma. It was kind of like, well, I'm trying to protect people, but I'm very small. I was a very small child. I don't know Were what you really? Yeah, I was tiny. <laughs> I was very tiny, a tiny child, right? short. Yep. How uh, tall are you now? I'm not sure, probably six one or six two. Yeah. Um, but I was five foot um five foot ten at eighteen. So I was very small. No, that's what I think is <laughs> in basketball terms. Yeah. You know, I actually went to America at the age of seventeen and played basketball in Oakland, California. Okay. And that's that's when I grew between the age of seventeen and eighteen. I went from five ten to six one. I don't know what it was, something in the burgers. Yeah, nice. There's no shortage yeah. of bur burgers over there too, just quietly. So, mate, what led you on to become a volunteer aid worker in Uganda? Um, so, because you're playing I basketball said, in America, yeah, right? playing yeah. basketball in America is a very um, Richmond, California. You know, my f my cousins will be hearing this, but I'm I'm pretty sure they'll be cool with it. But um, you know, we had 15 guns between us. Not us, but between them, there were three of them. It's a gun culture in America, so yeah. everyone has guns. You yeah. know, like you go to someone else's house and they'd be pulling out their shotguns that they just bought down the road. So it was not only with the gun culture, it was very um, hip-hop driven. So Oakland um, at the time, showing my age, was Tupac, you know, had come out. Yep. Um, MC Hammer was beefing with Bobby Brown, you know, and, and MC Hammer lived in Oakland. Um, but it was a real strong um, music culture. Um, and a lot of the uh, gangster rap began to come out. So it was kind of like a real angst environment um, for a teenager in the, in California. Um, but my thing was basketball. So I just loved uh, playing. I, I trialed out for the varsity squad, which is like your 12th grade squad for Al Cerrito High School. And I made the cut which I was so um, so pleased 
to do because I was just a kid out in New Zealand, you know, and these yeah. guys are, uh, for example, Michael Jordan was cut from the Varsity squad. That gives you an idea of yeah. how competitive it is. Um, so I made the squad and, but one thing that I couldn't, I guess, move away from was the years preceding. So I guess from the age of 10 up until my time in America, I started um, abusing substances. You know, I, um, you know, anything that could, could um, kind of get you out of normal, I would I would try, and with that, I guess I had a whole lot of um, you know behavioural. Like I said at school, I had a whole lot of uh, I couldn't I couldn't really um, sustain relationships. I felt that if someone was trying to get close to me, it was like a threat. And I think that was because you know I grew up um, we had quite a um, having three older brothers. There was a lot of fighting, a lot of violence, and that kind of made me distrust people. You know, I would I would often um, not trust the people that I was with, even though they were probably there to help me. And that ended up in Oakland, you know, just drinking a lot, not not having discipline, not having um, really good mentors, not having support. I didn't have real family support there. And so although my basketball was going good, but my outside life as a 17-year-old, it was just like a – it was just crazy. I didn't have any, any peace. I didn't have any um, – like I said, I didn't have discipline. Um, I had no support. And so I didn't last long in California. Um, I made the squad, and they actually went on to win the California championship. Yeah, nice. So we had some intense games. It was wonderful. I tend to have a lot of, um, you know, especially at that time, dreams, real vision, um, um, impactful dreams. And I remember at that time, I had this dream where I felt that if I didn't leave California, something would happen. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I actually had a dream where I heard, which I believe now to be the man upstairs, say to me, you're going to go back to New Zealand and you're going to go to Africa and you're going you're gonna to turn your whole thing around and go to Africa. And so I'm in California and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just had this dream and, and, I, and, I, and I didn't know who God was, you know, I mean, I didn't know. I wasn't going to church. I yeah. wasn't. Um, I wasn't raised in the church. Um, my parents are not religious. I, I, did, I didn't know what this voice was, or if this dream was even real. But I thought, well, if it is real, and I and I can go to Africa, so I took it. You know, so I I, I booked my plane back to New Zealand. Um, booked booked my plane back to New Zealand. Um, I don't know how, but I ended up going to a church months months later. Um, and when I went to this church. Um, they were people were putting their names in a in a hat and passing it around. So as a joke, I put my name in it. A um, couple of weeks later, uh, I get a phone call and and someone says, "Hey, uh, congratulations!" I said, "Why?" He said, "Yeah, you're going to Antwerp." I said, "Why am I going to Antwerp?" He said, "You put your name in a hat in church, and we've chosen some young people, and we're going to send you to Antwerp." I said. I think I swore at her, <laughs> I said, you know, which is pretty bad, you know. I said, "Look, I don't want to go to I don't go to Antwerp." I want to go to Africa, like because you know I had. She didn't know I had that dream. Yeah. So I said, "Nah, thanks. You know, you got the wrong guy." And then I, I, I hung up the phone on those days. Yeah. And then I and I just said, you know, I kind of was like a thought. I said, "Well, you know, who, Mister God, whoever, well, whatever. If you're real, then then you'd you'd would be going to Africa." And I left I left America and my basketball dream, my hoop dream, because I thought you'd said Africa. So what's the deal? So I started like. Giving the man a serve, you know, and I said, "You gotta, you gotta, um, you gotta make it. You gotta switch it up, like off sacrifice." You know, here's me. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, and I'm ready to go to Africa. And I left it. Didn't think about it anymore. But I was, I was a bit pissed off, you know. 
because I'd kind of come all the way back based on this feeling. Uh, a week later, I get a phone call. Hey, Glenn, uh, we've changed the, um, we're not going to Antwerp, we're going to Uganda. And I said, I'm in. Um, and you're 19 at this stage? Well, I was 19, yeah. yeah. I was 19. Wow. Um, and Uganda, yeah, that was just a, just just flying there was fun because we went to Singapore in a nice hotel and, I, you know, I had no idea what I was really doing. I, d- I didn't even really believe in the church that I, that had sent me. I didn't even really know. Yeah. All I, to me, it was just a trip. I was just going to have a trip, yeah. you know, going to see Africa and um, didn't care really what, what they, their intention was because, um, you know, I'm 19. I'm selfish. I just want to see things, you know. I, I, um, I didn't know about anything other than just having a good time, especially from from California. Yeah. Um, so I go to U- Singapore, it's really lovely, and then we fly into um, Uganda and you, you you get out of the plane, you see the poverty and you see the, the deprivation. We'd had a glimpse of it in Bombay, which I think is now called Mumbai. So we'd had a glimpse of that because you had to get to India to get to Africa. Um, but... I'd say within the first hour of being in Uganda, I was broken, man. I was a broken mess. Within an hour? Within just seeing, I mean, people um, walking on all fours, with, born with their feet the other way. And and that was that was so common there. Is that right? Lepers, you know, lepers sitting on the side of the road, their nose half hanging off their ears, you know, like it was just something out of, I don't know, out of a horror movie. Yeah. That really... Um, I, I then lived there for a year and a half, working in Uganda. So after the first day broke me, after a year and a half, I kind of, I kind of, um, I don't know, man. I just, you know, we have like westernized world. We have the Western world, and we have that world. And I kind of just um, embrace the the fact that I'm here to just serve. And I'm, I'm, I'm it changed, it changed um, my, I guess, my values and my thinking. I stopped thinking about me. It wasn't no longer about just me, just me. I'm gonna go to America, make a lot of money, you know, leave, maybe join, a, get a job, and and uh, set myself up and and give myself a big home, maybe buy a home for my kids, and blah blah blah. That's that was what I was told life was about. But I'm not saying it isn't. But um, when you see, for example, I walked into an orphan's baby's home, and I walked into the home, and there were like a hundred babies in cots. And because they were short on the uh, the nuns, there was l- normally only one nun that would walk around and care for the babies. So the ones that could get out of the cot, so the toddlers, to feed them, they'd cook uh, this big thing called ugali, which is like banana or poshaw, and they would just pour it out onto the floor. And the kids that could get out of their cots and walk over would just come and eat from is that right from the pile of food that had been cooked. Um, the babies that couldn't get out. And um, if they hadn't been touched over the, a certain amount of days, they were dying. So there wasn't because a baby needs to be touched. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs it needs to be Absolutely. touched. Uh, otherwise, they die through lack of um, touch. So you know, there were dead babies in like I'd walking around. There were dead babies there, and there's only one one nun. So you you know you just you just you just like oh my gosh, you know this is these people have real problems. You know, there's real issues here, and that's that's just part of my African experience. But that that changed me to the point where it's as if I was there yesterday. That's how I live now, and I've I've, I've been out of Africa 25 years. Wow, 
Yeah. <clears throat> wow. I can only assume what you uh, went through working a year and a half, you said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah was that your initial engagement was how long? Like when you first went over there, was it you going for a month, two months? No, it was for two years. It was for two years, yeah. was it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was the, the length. Did you make change when you were there? Um, I think I think so because we, we actually um, work with different communities in Uganda. We initially went to Lera. Lera is the north of Uganda. Um, it's the home of, or was the home of um, Aboti. So um, uh, Aboti was the president of Uganda and went to visit the Queen and actually um, Idi Amin came in and took over the country at that time. So Idi Amin uh, went up to Lera specifically to destroy his, um, to kill all the men and the women, you know, to kill as many of that tribe as he could. Um, and they have a saying because the, the Nile River runs through and there's lots of rivers in, in, in that part of the world. And they say in the time of Idi Amin's um, coup that um, the Nile fish, which is quite a big fish, and the crocodiles were exorbitantly bigger because he would throw, uh, Amin's soldiers were throwing Aboti's people into the rivers. So they, they, to, to really, you know, so we actually, I actually slept on the floor in a, um, a classroom floor where it had the bloodstains of uh, one of the servants who'd been shot by Amin's soldiers. So I slept where his, where he'd been killed and the bloodstains were still there. And that, that, that's the type of, I guess, um, conflict that I'd, I'd never known in New Zealand. You don't get taught it. You know, you, I heard about Eddie Amin and how he used to, there's movies on him and he was a horrible, horrible man, dictator. You know, you'd go to people's homes, older older gentlemen. At the time I was, you know, I was only 20. So I'd go into homes of men who are my age now and they'd have pictures of the current president who was Museveni, you know, Yoweri Museveni. But then you'd look behind the picture and it'd be Eddie Amin. Hmm. So they were... A lot of them were still loyal to Amin, and um, so yeah, it's like there's still a lot of um, you know, there's just 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 stuff that you you don't think of when you're living here, you know, in the Western world. I can only imagine, and that's not even talking about what happens in the uh, day to day life of people outside of those two areas. Yeah. yeah, mate. Let's step forward. So you've you've done your time as an aid worker, and it's changed your life, and that's what sets you up to be the human you are today. Yes, yeah. yeah, definitely. And do, do you want to touch on some of the great things you are doing now? Because I think people need to really understand what you do. Um, well, I guess from Uganda, I I had to decide when I came back to New Zealand, I, I was kind of lost for a good eight years. For eight years, I suffered from, I think, what would be now known as PTSD, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then I had reverse culture shock, which is when you go from a um, civil war into normal living it's like uh you can't get used to so funny story my wife will tell people and i'm not really proud about it but um i couldn't go number twos in the toilet for months like i think she said probably six months to a year is that right yeah i couldn't use an, a regular toilet because in in the bush up in uganda it's long drops you know it's always long drops so you're you're squatting over yeah. a, a hole in the ground and um you're always scared to go in uganda to to go toilet because the um, long drops are, are man-made, so it's basically they, 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 dig, they dig a massive hole and then they put bamboo reeds and stuff over the top of it 
and then they pack it with mud, but they leave a small little hole, you know, for you to do your business. And yeah. then they put a little thatched. So often people would walk in there and the thing would collapse and you'd die. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And um, so it's the most horrible thing going to <laughs> when you when you go uh, in, in those days, I'm sure it's it's still in some villages, but um, for some reason I couldn't I couldn't um, I wouldn't wear shoes. When I came back to New Zealand, so I'd be it'd be middle of winter, you know, five degrees, and and I'd be I just had bare feet. I couldn't have a bank card, or I didn't want money. I didn't um want, I didn't buy myself anything. I kind of scoffed at the house that my parents had. You know, I'd rather probably sleep down in the garage, and a lot of times I just slept on the floor because I just just felt that was where I didn't want to lose what I lost, what I, what I learnt, and. At the same time, I I felt I didn't deserve it, and I don't know. I guess a lot of um, people have been in those situations. Um, they may be different, but that's just how I responded. I I just felt unworthy to have all the stuff, like to to turn on the tap and have water, have a drink of water, you know, without having to travel miles and miles to to pump it and then carry it on jerry can. And so I think there was just a, a a short time, but then I I. I, was, I think I was grieving for the people there, but it came to a point where I had to stop because I thought, you know what, this is not helping me. It's not helping anybody. Everything I've learned, it's not being translated into something. And so probably after, I would say, three or four years, I was house painting with my brother, you know, just I'd be painting yeah. just my mind would be elsewhere. I, I then snapped back into, well, I've got to get back into youth work. So I started working at a youth facility and I would teach uh, youth gang members. So youth gang members who were trying to get out of the gang, as a tutor, I would teach them careers. Like, you know, you're, you're really good at burglarizing, you're really good at standing over people, and you're really good at drug dealing, but you have a talent, but let's flip it around and let's try and make it, um, you, you know, you're good at sales. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, you're great, you're great at sales. Um, if they were burglarable, they were going into people's homes, I said, man, you know, you really, you, you actually know what a safe house is and can we can we look at a, you know, going into security or being a locksmith, you know, yeah. or you know how to how to get into people's environments, but you'd also know how to safeguard them. Yeah, exactly. So I'd kind of flip it around, talk to these guys. As I was talking to them, a lot of them were doing crimes, you know, like serious crimes, um, aggravated robberies. I'd often have half the class because most of them were in lockup. And half of them would be um, grievous bodily harm charges. So not just a punch to the head, it was everything else, you know, like damaging people. Yep. And these were big kids, you know, these are 15-year-olds who are bigger than you and I, you know. And so I began to have an interest in, man, um, you know, why are they committing these crimes? You know, and I realized that there were certain factors as to why they were deciding to do what they were doing, poverty. They were all living in like really bad places, really bad homes, you know, um, no money. Like there'd be one household with 20 people living in it. Wow. You know, that's like a like nothing. It was nothing. So there was no wallpaper, no carpet. Um, there was no regular food. All the food they were eating were all offcuts, you know, like lamb flaps and things like that because that's all they could afford. Uh, pig feet, pig ears, pig trotters. And, um, you know, that that then made me understand, well, heck, um, these kids are frustrated, you know. These are these are 15-year-old kids who uh, have to be the taxi for the family, have to assume responsibilities that they probably shouldn't, are not ready for. Yep. So 12 years old, they're driving to pick up 
dad from work to take him to his second and third job, you know, when they don't have a license. Um, so I just started to see, you know, these factors that, um, you know, start to um, make kids make bad decisions. And as much as I was trying to give them the good, the good oil, they still go back to that environment, you know. So mm. I, I just I started to, I guess, have an interest in um, how can I help on a, on a deeper level. And I looked at my job. I was a painter. I was also doing, I'd done storeman work in a factory, driving forklifts and, and moving product. And nothing really um, excited me because, like I said, I get bored. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll join the police force, you know, because <laughs> I get to drive, you know, cars fast. Yep. I get some cool gear, you know, um, and I can be in the office and be outside, you know, and I can um, see the youth, but I can also go home for lunch, you know. And I just thought it was, we had these ads on TV and they're really exciting ads, you know, talking to homeless people on the ads, um, chasing burglars. And because as a young person, I always wanted to get the, the bad guy, I had the strong sense of justice. It kind of all, you know, being in Africa, I, being being like in a militari military, militarized environment, there was always the Ugandan soldiers. I thought, man, you know, there's um, there's some something um, about order in a in a in a um, civil conflict situation. The Ugandan soldiers were so impressive. Like I've never seen physicality like the Ugandan soldiers. You know, these are guys who. They don't have bench presses in that, but they will train every day. They will be lifting. They'll lift anything. They'll get uh, the axles out of the Tata. It was always Tata lorries back then. And they'd be, you know, bench pressing axles and wow. and lifting engine blocks because they're in the bush, you know. So they, they just had the most amazing physiques. And I thought, man, one day I could look like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to get bigger. And, and I don't know, just all the things that appeal to you as a, you know, uh, now now a 21-year-old, 20, or no, sorry, 23-year-old because I was in Uganda two years. I just started to, I guess, get a calling. I felt, again, like this this desire to go this way. Um, the problem was my maths is shit. Um, I, I got marks for putting my name on my high school certificate and then I walked out. Um, so I didn't, you had to have your maths and I thought, well, I'm never going to pass, you know. I'll pass the fitness, but I won't pass the maths. My English was good. I decided to get a tutor. I got a tutor, um, you know, for a, a few months. And then um, I rocked on up to the police test. Um, in those days, it was like one out of 60 passed. It was mm -hmm. a very high failure rate. And they'd tell you at the end of it, they'd just call your name out and say, you failed, you wow. know. These are the guys that failed and the girls that <laughs> failed. And they call your name out. Um <laughs> Man, I was sweating. I, I I was sitting in the car. I didn't want to go, you know. And I I was thinking, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. But again, I just thought of the stuff that I'd seen in Africa, and I thought, well, maybe this is a way that I can. Maybe I can be a police officer, and then I, eventually I can start projects. Eventually, I could use my knowledge, and so that was the hope and the faith, I guess, that I had in what I'd seen. And then, yeah, I passed that day, um, joined the police in 1998, and then did two years on the front line. Um, again, I was kind of used to the stuff that I was seeing, you know, all the all the triple one, uh, triple one New Zealand, triple zero here, um, used to domestics, used to fighting, used to... so. I was never overwhelmed, and plus I'd been in Africa, you know, I was like... Yeah, you'd seen it there. Yeah, and that's when I thought, uh, after two years, okay, I need to, this is the time that I start a project, and I was able to uh, get a role um, looking after 
West Auckland, um, which is quite a large area, and my mandate was domestic violence, uh, road trauma, youth gangs, recruitment, um, and well, victim that, support. That's a portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's when I you know started doing projects. Started the first Pacific Island Victim Support Group for the New Zealand Police. Um, helped pioneer the uh, Pacific Wardens, which is your um, people who want to participate with the police and help with security. So they they. They become wardens of the community, okay. give them uniform and 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 assist them, and and um, so they're the eyes and ears of of the community. Also set up um, with Sir Michael Jones, uh, the famous All Black, good friend. Um, we set up a a trust called the Village Community Services Trust, and that mentors over eight hundred kids every day. It's also a food bank right? now, yeah. And we just we just. Um, 800 kids a day. Yeah, 800 kids a day. They, they have a massive food bank now that feeds the community. You know, just amazing. But it all started off with, you know, just that desire to help, not not really knowing how to do it. Um, There's something in that. Yeah, just doing it. Yeah, there's you no know? rules. Like, you, you no just rules. get in there and do what you need to do. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so much um, in having your why, you know. Um a lot of people talk about their why. My why is not just Uganda, but it's now homelessness. Um, so with what I'm doing, I'm about to set up a a um, like a homelessness um, food delivery. I'm, I'm going to make food at home with my kids so that they learn. They already know about having community conscience, but I want to start um, delivering um, hot food to the homeless down in Cooley and around various areas of the Broadbeach. So that's what I'm going to dedicate my Fridays to. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Uh, if anyone out there are, um, needs to contact you or is interested in helping, how do they get you, mate? Ah, uh, yeah. So I have a um, a Facebook page called Hope Village. I don't know. Maybe you could throw up the link. And so that's that's how they can get hold of me. Uh, on there, they'll see various people that I've spoken to on a podcast. Um, I'd love to have you on board. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just, yeah, they can reach out to me through that. And it's voluntary, obviously, you know, there's, there's, it's just your own time. I have time one day a week where I can actually commit to that. But I believe that, um, you know, if I'm not doing, um, stuff like that, um, I kind of feel like I'm not really giving that experience, you know, that much, um, much given, much requ required. You know, a lot of people think of the Spider-Man movie, but before the Spider-Man movie, you know, you have great responsibility, blah, 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 but even way back since I was in Uganda, I feel that much. I've been given much, so much is required. It's amazing, yeah. absolutely amazing. Hey team, it's Greg from Body Science here. The Hydroxy Burn Shred is back on shelf. It's our new therapeutic, has all the taste. And if you're looking for a better thermogenic, we've really pushed for the pursuit of a better thermogenic. Full disclosure on the labeling. What do we mean? Caffeine levels have changed. We all know the rules have changed. The ingredients have changed. The claims have changed. We have a clean label with premium quality ingredients for you. So what does that mean for you? You can look at things like metabolism energy, sugar metabolism, fat metabolism, cognitive function, thyroid, and just general health and well-being. And it's all on the label if you're taking a fat burner now and it doesn't say it on the label have a look at it and go why get on board so at what stage do you think gee i'm going to become an author i'm going to write a book well uganda again so i was uh i was in the police force um for around uh six years um i was doing the um the mandated thing with 
DV, um, road fatalities um, and recruitment and youth gangs. And I had started writing, I guess, since Uganda. I was always writing as a kid. So I was, I've always been an English, um, like A plus student okay. throughout my, it wasn't always that way. It was, um, it was uh, touch and go because I was getting caned and strapped all the time. So my parents were pulling their hair out like, what are we going to do with this kid? And my mum happened to hand me a book by C.S. Lewis, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Tales of Narnia. And so she handed me this book. So at, in the context, I was stricken with asthma. I couldn't run around and play rugby with the other kids, and I was struggling at school because me protecting other kids and, and helping other kids was seen as um, disobedience and whatnot. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was protecting. So she gave me this book. So I fell in love with reading at a younger age, probably about eight years old, and I idolized C.S. Lewis. I thought, this guy is amazing. I didn't realize that he's actually like a Christian and that Aslan represents Jesus, and I didn't know all that stuff. I just thought these are cool characters. And so I'd been writing songs, so I'd, I've actually recorded songs as well. I'm a recorded uh, hip-hop artist in that time between Uganda and being in the police. Um, I was known as the hip-hop cop in New Zealand. I'd go right? To, yeah, I'd go to schools and just uh, bust out you know, some tracks, uh, some songs in uniform. Um, and so writing for me has kind of been like a natural thing. So this particular incident in Uganda, we were on safari in Kenya. I was at the front of about eight people. The, um, the uh, what do you call them? not the scout, the um, person that looked after you, had an elephant gun. He was Kenyan at the back. I don't know why he was at the back. <laughs> uh, we're walking around the trail and we're trying to look at some hop, uh, hippopotamus, you know, uh, on the river. And um, as we're going around the corner, um, this cute little, you know, lady baboon just appears with the baby underneath. A so, cute little baboon yeah. <laughs> in Africa. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and, you know, we already knew that, you know, the main three ways of dying in Uganda was hippo, because they kill a lot of people, baboon, and then rebels. And probably not in any particular order. So, but when I saw this cute little lady baboon, I was like, "Wow, that's she's you know," it's, and it's got a little baby underneath, and there's one on top. I was like, "Wow, man, it's right here. I could, I could just, just about touch it." And the Af uh, the, the Kenyan guide said, "Don't move." So we just froze, and he says, "Don't move. Don't say anything." So I'm at the front, so I don't move. Then the second um, lady baboon, and then the third, fourth, after about twenty. <laughs> Then I started to realize, okay, if there's women, where's the men? And that's why we were frozen. So they're walking past us, very weary, kind of scowling at us. And one of the, the my friend behind me, she's always cheeky, you know, always um, trying to be the clown and always trying to get me into trouble. So as they're walking past, she thought it was fun to go, rah, you know, oh. just to, 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 to frighten. You're kidding me. No, nah, but she's behind me. So she screamed out like rah, and the and then all of a sudden these um, baboons started screaming and and like like you've never heard the loudest screams. Um, when that happened, you could see the bushes parting. You could hear to the right, to in front, and to behind. You could see literally like um, you know like Jurassic Park when mm, the dinosaurs yeah. come in to eat people, and you see the trees parting. That's what we saw, and they were the bulls. So the bulls are the the you know. They're coming to, well, who's messing with our woman yep. and who's touching our babies? They burst through, me being at the front, uh, one burst through, through the clearing, and another one 
and they were coming for me because I'm the biggest guy and I'm at the front. My friend Aseta had, I don't know what she was doing, I couldn't see her, but I was going to be it, you know, I was going to take the hit. And as they came through, claws out, fangs out, I just, I just, I knew because I'd been in Uganda oh, a long time then. We were actually in Kenya because we got arrested and thrown out of Uganda. So I was like, I know all about what's going to happen here. So I literally closed my eyes and put my head down, just just waiting to die, just waiting to get. Wow. You can't do anything. Like, you can't run. Yeah, no. I don't know why, but um, as I closed my eyes and I was just like, it's over, my life flashed before my eyes, like literally. It flashed before my eyes. I saw everything that I'd ever done. In, in, an, in an instant, I saw everything that I'd done in public, anything I'd done in private, anything I'd done in my mind. And then right at the end of it, I had this, and this is in a split second, I had this overwhelming, sad feeling. I'm like, man, I have just shat on my life. I have not done anything. And I'm I'm 20. I thought, you know, everything, everything that I've done is not going to really stand for anything. It hasn't helped anyone. I'm, I was selfish, you know. I was just... Having a good time, you know, it was all about me. And then I just kind of closed my eyes and in that flash, I thought about if only I could have it back again. You know, if I, I'm about to die, but if only I could have another crack, another chance. And um, I could smell the breath of the baboon. So he was right here. Why well, didn't, because they, they just rip your head off. Mm. You know, they can just bite your face off. They're, I think a baboon's like three, three to six times the strength of one man. They could just tear you apart. And as I, for some reason he didn't, but I, in me, I, I said to myself, if, I, if, if, if you give me another chance, because I'd already started to believe in the man upstairs by then, I thought, well, if I, I'll stop pissing around. I'll stop shitting around. You know, I'll, I'll, if you give me another chance, I'll, I'll actually do some stuff. And I opened my eyes and they were backing away. Really? They were just backing away with, with the troop and, and, and looking at me like, you're lucky, son. <laughs> you know, this is your lucky day. And no, and that, <laughs> I don't know how many people have had that experience where they've actually survived the baboon. Maybe there's, maybe that's what they do. I don't know. But for me, I had another chance. So I wrote that in a one-pager. I'll, I'll, I can email it to you or you, you can have that. And it's called Flash, and it talks about that. So six years forward in my New Zealand police career, I pulled up Flash. It just came up on my um, iMac. I'm like, wow, I should give this poem away. This this experience of being, you know, with the baboons. And so I um I Googled publishers. So you Google publishers and you get like, I don't know, hundred and fifty thousand different publishers around the world. So I'm like, oh, this is no good. Like, who do I send it to? Because I just wanted to give it away. I thought it was a good story. Yeah. And um so I thought, well, you know. I'm a praying man by now, by then. So I just, I just, I just, I literally just stop, close my eyes. See, I see God. Um, there's so many published. I don't know who to send it to, but if you show me an African elephant, so not an Indian elephant, because there's a difference. But so I always, I always test. I always t- <laughs> terrible. Eh? I always <laughs> put them to the test. Like, don't give me just any elephant. I want an African elephant. And if you give me one, I'll send it to that. So I, I went to a few pages. This is the old days of um, dial-up, you yeah. know, so like click on the arrow and we'll had to wait yeah. like two minutes and then the next page. i through that. Yeah. People don't understand that. No. Nah. And then um, I clicked on the link, like fifth down, and boom, up came an African elephant. And um, so I went down to, to, and it was a book by Harper Collins. 
um, who are very well known. Penguin, HarperCollins, Random Publishing, they're the top ones. Um, so I went down to that link, I clicked on it, and there was inquiries or admin at HarperCollins. So I just clicked on that and I just said a few sentences. I said, hi, I'm a cop in West Auckland. I'm not an author, but I've written this poem. And if you can use it in any way you want, just use it. I think it'll be good. And I sent it. The next day I get a phone call. Well, it's, it's a... Um, it's a uh, recorded message. Hi, my name is Lorraine Day from HarperCollins Publishing, and I've just read your email, your story on the baboons. And she said, I don't know how I got it because we don't receive unsolicited emails. They must have like a, a rule. Yep. She said, we, we receive manuscripts. Like we deal with um, big, pub, you know, yeah, exactly. big publishers, and we would like, I'd like to see you. I'm in Auckland. I didn't even know they were in Auckland. And so I went and saw her and... She asked me, she said, tell me about your, your life. And I'm like, well, this is it. You know, a little bit about what we shared today and this is my experience. And she said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever read and I'd like to offer you a book deal. No way. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, okay, what does that involve? Like how do I write a book? I didn't know how to write a book. Um, so they gave me a mentor yep. and basically uh, they wanted me to write a book on my life, but at that time I didn't want to do it because – I didn't want to put myself forward, you know. I didn't want to write about myself, you know. And so they asked me, well, what, what do you think you'd like to write on? And I said, well, in my short time of policing, which was around 10 years by then or 7 to 10 years, the main problem I see with the community is lack of parenting. You know, I see these young men and women, young kids, and lack of role models, lack of um, examples, and so I think I thought, well, if I really want to write a book, I want to write something that means something. And that's fatality to an author, you know, in, in those days. Like, if you want to write about sex and, you know, blimmin', um, I don't know, uh, what do you call it? 40 Shades of Grey or whatever. If you like, that's here's me wanting to write about something that means something. Yeah. So I uh, wrote a book around parenting. Um, it went um, bestsellers in the first, I think, first month. It was on number two in New Zealand. There were some other very popular authors as well, um, writing about how to grow good boys or growing good men. Uh, Celia, Celia Lashley, uh, God bless her soul, who's passed now, she she had a great book on, you know, what makes young boys tick. So she was the first Māori Pacific, uh, sorry, Māori warden for the prison. So she had a lot of insight into criminality. And so she, she was um, always a bestseller. And that's, that's how I became an author. So I wrote a book over nine months, um, did all the um, touring and TV shows and whatnot, which resulted in I had a radio show. I was offered a radio show on a Pacific network, which is a, one of the popular youth, you know, R&B, hip-hop, yep. uh, gospel channels. So that led into that. So now I'm, yeah, I'm writing, I'm in the middle of three books now. So a children's book, which I've actually finished, um, which talks about, um, children's struggles at school. So it addresses bullying, addresses isolation, you know, addresses cultural diversity. And that's one that I've actually finished. But I'm, I'm looking for an illustrator, if anyone's out there, who, <laughs> who can um, help me with the illustrations. And that one's ready to go. Um, the second one is a revised Streetwise Parenting, because when I wrote Streetwise, it, we never had iPhones and social media. Yeah, exactly. So there were I couldn't write about the threats of sex, you know, sexting and yep. 
in Snapchats and all that sort of stuff and um, all the nasty stuff that social media is. Social media is great, but it has a, an underbelly side as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, And then the third one is called Cops and Angels. So Cops and Angels is about times when, as a police officer, um, you go to a lot of stuff where you've got a, a ghastly scene, you've got a horrible situation, you've got kids standing in glass, you've got um, blood most of the time, you've got crisis. And so this book is going to be about when the, an offender showed up at that scene, you had um, the scene environment, you had a victim at that scene, but also times when I believe God showed up as well and or an angel. And I've got dozens and dozens of times when I've been in a situation like that when something happened or something occurred where I just knew it wasn't um it was it was just an added element there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So And then you moved to Australia and became a police officer here as well. Yeah, yeah. It was too cold in New Zealand, man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> my kids my kids I have four kids and they were um my my oldest was asthmatic like me. Yeah. But then mine was cold induced asthma. So he had it too. So I said to my wife, we gotta go some we gotta go warmer. So um we've moved to to the Gold Coast 10 years ago and he he still has an inhaler but he he's basically stopped having yep. asthma on a daily and you know my kids play sport play footy and my little girls playing Oztag and it's just a, a, a beautiful place to live yeah it is a yeah. beautiful place to live yeah and mate just closing up you've got your little Club 100 what's that it's your fitness group oh yeah so um, Club 100 that's is, how we met yeah yeah, yeah that's right yeah. Club 100 is just something that I um, set up to for, you know to encourage people to fitness you mm -hmm. know um, a lot of people can't because of their work train with someone else or mm -hmm. they don't have they might be doing nights so it's just a platform to you know you can put up your workout to encourage someone else yep. so the whole the whole thing is that you you, you throw it up um i call it like the one step rule you know that you wherever you are in life you're always one step ahead of someone and not in in the in a proud sense but let's say you and i we can we're able-bodied we're one step from someone who who maybe isn't yet wants to do fitness as well so i post for those who may not be able to do what I do to be encouraged to do what they can do. Yeah. So it's um yeah, and it's going really well. You know, mm. like um a lot of people up there throwing their things from all over. You know, New Zealand, some from Fiji, uh, America. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just a way to to towards better health. And that's a Facebook group, isn't it? That's a Facebook group. Yeah. yeah nice, Glenn. It's been absolutely awesome talking to you. You are someone who has. Um, God, I don't even know what word to use right now. You've just, you've done everything and, and have an, a massive amount of belief, which is what I love about you. When I speak to you, I just get, like, I just feel really empowered. When you leave, I just think, like, I can do more. And, yeah, I just want to say thanks for that. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah you, you've done some really amazing things. And I hope the next uh, person who podcasts with you gets a few more Uganda stories out of you because <laughs> um, <clears throat> some of the ones you talked about earlier were horrific. And the world needs to know that's happening. You know, we live in a bubble. We mm. have no idea. We, we, we complain about being locked down, you know what I mean? Yeah, you start talking about neck lacing and all the things you talked about before, like that's that's a lockdown. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's something that, you know, and just in leaving with the listeners, with yourself and with yourself, Ash, <laughs> is that the key that I've found to, to continue doing what you're doing, even though you're seeing the stuff and, well, it's two things. One is that we go through really hard times, rough times, um, and I learned this actually in – 
in doing the sergeant's papers that I had to do five years ago to become a sergeant is that the learning was, it was called management development program. And to be a good leader or to be a leader is you have to have reached a point where everything you've been through, you then take that and then you do something about it. But those who haven't led yet or are still, I guess, hidden leaders are people who are still dealing with it. So they're still dealing with the harm and the trauma they've seen and they're frozen in it and they don't know how to translate it through to the next. So I'm just blessed and happy that I I was able to, you know, um, absorb it get down it's not it's not it's not it's not it's not bad or sad and being down about something but don't get down too long you know it's fine to be down about a relationship breakdown or business failure or a a book that's gone didn't sell anything whatever any disappointment but don't get down but don't get down too long yeah, pick nice yourself words. back up yeah, you know good words. and lastly just be grateful every day that i drive to work or i drove here i just start i talk I talk, my self-talk is I start saying, I, I thank you for this. And I thank, I thank God for everything that I have. I thank God that I, I have two legs. I thank God that I have health and gratefulness. Once you, once you lose gratefulness, you start to moan and, you know, be a problem. <laughs> I'm a massive fan of being grateful. Yeah. Massive fan. All right. Every morning, first thing. Yeah. That's my play. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me, Greg. Mate, that was awesome. Yeah. That was uh, – so if you want to catch up with Glenn, uh, Facebook, Hope Village, that's the mental health Platform, Facebook yep. page. Yep. yep. Uh, Club 100 and Facebook group is where people can come and get some training advice and yep. just throw their ideas around about training and yeah. not fear, feel safe yep. about training. Yep. And if you want Glenn's book, Streetwise Parenting, published 2009 by HarperCollins, yes. get on board. You've been a busy man. Thank you. I love it.